What's up, everyone? I hope you're doing well today. This is Raphael Garcia here with Swan Humes for episode 146 of the MMA Ratings Podcast, our last show of 2019. So we want to say, before we do anything else, thank you for supporting us this year. Happy holidays, Merry Christmas, Happy Kwanzaa, Happy Hanukkah, and anything in between. Happy New Year as well. Um, We will be coming back on... January 2nd, which is two weeks from now. But as always, I want to say thank you for taking the time to listen to us here. Swan, why don't everybody know how you're doing? Oh, I'm good. You know me. Same busy as always. Uh, Going to start grappling again soon. I've been taking a long break, then kickboxing. But uh, I haven't had much time, so I've just been training so many kids, man. It's just nuts how many kids I've been training for basketball. Man, you got so many kids. We get training so many kids. What are you talking about? Oh yeah, they, all the kids they had their birthdays too. Uh, the other one, the twins had their birthday a week and a half ago, and then my other daughter had her birthday today. So that's three seventeen-year-olds now. Tons of fun, very expensive fun. Yeah, very. That sounds expensive as shit. So let's go ahead and talk about a couple of different things. Um, we have quite a bit to cover today. We're going to talk back at. We're going to talk about UFC two forty-five. The only news bit I want to talk about today is Roy McDonald going to the PFL. And, yeah, so let's start there. Let's start the news first with Roy McDonald signing with the Professional Fighters League. And he is no longer with Bellator, former UFC title contender, former Bellator champion, now moving over to the PFL. Swan, what was your first thoughts of this change of scenery for McDonald? I, I wasn't really shocked at all. I was actually... I thought it was a good move for him. The thing about the, the biggest thing that's been the issue for fighters in mixed martial arts is they've had very few viable options as far as career. As far you know, you either go to UFC, then there's Bellator, and if you can't go to one of those two organizations, you're basically forced to go to Risen or some kind of overseas promotion. And I, for the life of me, have not understood not understood why more fighters have not taken a look at the Professional Fighters League. Um, not only are they backed up by ESPN, so they have a huge platform the way they have their their matches set up it gives you enough time to uh, keep it keeps you active you have guaranteed fights you kind of know what direction you're moving in and it spaces out the fights there's none of that unless you know some somebody falls out and you choose to take the position there's none of that short notice thing there's no real pressure as far as i know there's no real pressure from the organization to take certain fights because it's it's worked in a manner that's much more similar to traditional sports so there's a progression in the fights there's not just some random hodgepodge mix-up of matchups and to me that seems like it fits Roy McDonald because he seems like a very cerebral guy a guy who really wants to kind of prepare appropriately and look at the landscape and make decisions based off what's been presented to him and in mixed martial arts everything's so so crazy chaotic you never really know what you're getting into or what's going to happen in any any given setup so to me, this this made perfect sense to him. It's a big platform. He'll be the biggest star they have, I guess, outside of Harrison, but he'll be the most established star. And, you know, he'll have time to rest, and he'll, he'll get to fight a variety of styles, and he gets a chance to win a championship in another division, in another organization, which is big for him because he's also a legacy guy. So do you think he is comes out as the top uh name to potentially win the next tournament? Is he like your shoe-in candidate? Uh, I don't see how you don't have him. Um, to be quite honest, how, how do you not? He's a He just lost a world championship to a guy who's considered, what, a top 10, top 12 welterweight? And if nothing else, while Rory isn't nearly as durable as he used to be, the fact of the matter is he's, in any organization he's in, he's one of the most experienced and one of the most skilled fighters they're going to have. And the guys in PFL, there's a lot of young guys coming up, athletic, uh, skilled, tough, durable, able to set high paces. But he doesn't have anybody who's even remotely used to the caliber of opposition he faced, nor does he have anybody with the years of experience or rounds of experience in this martial arts. You know, I mean, there's, there's certain things that experience will get you through, and I don't know who he'd be fighting there who has a better, who has longer or more, quali- more quality experience level or resume than he has. Good thoughts there, man. You're breaking up just a little bit for me. Um, there was actually some I saw some rumblings about additional fighters who may be moving over to that organization. Who do you think would be in the PFL in the future? 
who are some names that you wouldn't be surprised if they popped up? I'm really actually shocked some more female fighters didn't try to follow uh, Sarah Kaufman's route. I know the weight class isn't isn't what they like because of the because you know they don't have a 135 or even 145. But the fact of the matter is, once again, some of these girls are 135. As thin as their division is, their division is super deep compared to the 155 division. And most of the girls they face, while who would have advantages in size, maybe youth. Once again, these girls don't have advantages in skill or experience. And skill and experience carries you a long way in mixed martial arts. I mean, the, the weight and the size and athleticism comes to be a factor, but when you've got a broader array, array of skills, it's a little bit easier to navigate that. I really thought Captain Gano might give it a look. I was surprised Cyborg didn't at least give it a chance. I, I'm not quite sure who... I, I wouldn't be surprised if anybody shows it there, but I'm just not sure who I would think of to be the next person to go into there. I thought Megan Anderson, Megan Anderson would have a good shot just because the UFC doesn't really have a division and she's just spinning her circle, spinning her wheels. But um, I guess she's re-signed and she's going to be there for a little while longer. True, true. Um, that's all I really wanted to talk about when it comes to that news. News. I didn't want to harp on that too long because we have a pretty big fight card to talk about in UFC 205. 245, excuse me. We have a couple fights I want to cover in general, some topics specifically from the bout as a whole. But yeah, we got a lot that we talk about there. So let's go ahead and jump on into that. And let's start with the main event where Kamal Usman defeated Kobe Covington via stoppage in the fifth round. We're going to talk about the stoppage in a second, but let's talk about the ramifications of this fight. My first question to you is. Did Covington's strategy work for him in the long in the long run, superstar wise? Like, um, he didn't earn any pay per view points on this. Um, right, he was recently dropped from a major sponsor. Fans are mocking him, but major outlets are actually talking about him. Rosie O'Donnell was talking about him. Um, Dave Zyron was talking about him. I think Jamel Hill was tweeting about him as well. So a lot of different people outside of MMA are talking about Covington more than they're talking about Usman. So did his strategy work out, and is he a bigger star for what happened on Saturday? No, the strategy did not work out. People are talking about him, but it's not in a manner that benefits him and that can monetize him. It's in a manner of when somebody gets busted for drugs or domestic abuse or assault or or is bankrupt or is, owes a company a large sum of money, people are talking about him but nobody's talking to him really in a favorable manner, and nobody's talking him in a, talking about him in a manner that's going to help his, raise his stock as far as bring in new fans or as far as generate money. That That's the biggest thing. When you talk trash, you've got a certain swagger, or you're considered a bad boy or a good girl or an all-American, whatever it is. The only way that talking people, talk, people talking about you helps is if it, it allows you to monetize it. It allows you to get commercials. It allows you to to demand certain paydays it gets you pay-per-view points it keeps you in contention or keeps you keeps you close to in contention even when you're not winning when you're ineffective when you're losing when you're on a losing streak certain fighters are so popular like bj penn he kept getting fights when he shouldn't stop he should have stopped getting fights four years ago chuck liddell got another year and a half of fights why because he's chuck liddell and people want to see him you know it it, it was a position that put him in position to win titles, put him in position to be contending for titles, put him in position to fight high-ranked fighters, put him in position to get paid. With Kobe Covington's act, it didn't do anything. It had people talking about him, but it didn't gather any support because as much as Kobe said racist or prejudiced things or things that made you cringe or wince, the fact of the matter is he never fully embraced it, so he could never really, I mean, not that I don't know there's an actual benefit, but he never got the full support of people who think that way because he never fully embraced it. He always kind of danced around it. And the fact that he danced around it alienated everybody else. Who's just, a, you know, somebody who wouldn't necessarily alienated them to the point where they don't want to support him. They don't want to watch him fight. They don't have any reason to demand the UFC keeps him around. keeps him in contention. So he's done a lot of the talk, but it really hasn't benefited him. And, and the worst part about it is he seems hesitant and, and scared of the results of the way he's taught. Like he says, you know, it's an act. I'm always looking over my shoulder. And it's like, that's what you bought into. That's what you sold your soul for. So if you're going to do it, you might as well go all the way in. And he's been halfway in, halfway out. And now he doesn't have the support of the people who, who think like his, 
his heel character things, and he doesn't have the support of people who are just disgusted by that line of thought, that line of logic. So he he really hasn't won anything. If anything, he's he's hurt himself, and and he's put himself in a position where I I don't know that he really bounces back from this. So, my big question is: I'm wondering what the UFC does with him next because he had such a tenuous relationship with Dana White heading into this, and it makes me wonder just how real those issues were. Are they going to book him in a main event fight in the future? Are they going to book him against a valuable opponent? Are they going to give him the John Fitz treatment where they gave him every tough name they possibly could to get him out of the organization? I really wonder how they're going to use Covington in the future because that's going to tell us a lot about how they value him long term. I, I don't know that there's a lot of value to him, and, and I and I hate to say that I just I don't know what he's done that actually because I haven't seen the pay per view yet on the ratings of fights he's had. I don't know I don't know that they've been particularly high rated. I don't as much as people like seeing Kobe Kobe Covington get punched in the face or smashed. I don't know that a lot of people are particularly excited to see him fight. You know, they want to see him lose, but I don't know that anybody's really excited about seeing what he can do or seeing what's done to him. You know, people, he's just like somebody you just don't like, somebody you don't really respect, somebody you don't really want to be around. He doesn't really invoke a super strong emotion, if you think about it. Like, there's disgust for what he's saying, there's disgust for the stance he's taken, but nobody really has a really good feeling, a really... I don't know, really uh, powerful reaction to him because everybody kind of thinks of him as a joke. Like I said, he he was half in, half out. He said, this is him, and he's being honest about who he is and what he is. And then the same instance, he says it's an act, and I'm just doing it for money. So he can't even really reap the full benefits of the act because he keeps on trying to dance, dance tiptoe and, and explain away and, and justify why he's doing what he's doing. And there's really nothing that's going to ever be justified justifiable about it. So it's like he can't win for losing because he 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 crossed the line, but he didn't go all the way over the line. He kept trying to he kept trying to tiptoe back and forth. And in this age of social media, you just can't do that. If he was going to do that, he should have just bought all the way in, taken whatever he comes with it and maximize and wrote it out. But I don't think he I don't think he's built like that. And I think it's just done more harm than good. What do you think about that story in totality? Do you think that? He was trying to backpedal at the last minute because that's the real Kobe Covington? Or do you think he was trying to backpedal at the last minute because he just he, he saw the damage he was doing to himself long term? Um, I think it's a combination of both. I think he's starting to realize the ramifications financially of, of, of this dance, you know, and I think he's also he felt he had to justify it because people were kind of leaning him towards some pretty despicable things and thoughts and natures and perspectives. And I think he wanted to make sure people knew that this was just something he was doing to keep his job, something that he was using to, to move up the ladder. And I guess that works because it means he's not a total, if you want to say scumbag or whatever. But the fact of the matter is people can't even respect his stance now because it, you're just saying, you know, I just said all these things for money. I just said all these things to get a title shot. I mean that almost makes it that almost makes it worse to a certain degree because you don't really even believe what you're saying. You're just saying it to get a reaction. And once we know that you don't really have any belief in what you're saying, how much reaction can you get from us? Very little. And worst part yet is he didn't win the fight. He's made himself very difficult. He's made himself almost unbearable as far as the stances he's taken. How can he be a sponsor who supports a guy who's saying the things he says, even if people in his camp say it's okay? If they weren't in his camp, they wouldn't feel that way. So in a sense, he, he, he's essentially been the author of his own demise because he's created a circumstance that he can't function in and he doesn't want to live in. Interesting thoughts there, man. Interesting thoughts. I want to segue from talking about Kobe and talk about Kumar Usman. And what's interesting about this is that right there tells you a whole lot. We started this conversation tonight talking about the contender, the challenger, who lost. Kobe is being... Kobe is the first thing that everyone's talking about. He's the first name in the headlines. He's the first name that people are are laughing and joking about coming out of USA 245. Is he the bigger name 
than Kamar Usman after this bout. bout. Well, he, yeah, I mean, he, he's the bigger name just by the fact that he actually took steps to promote the fight, and he actually took steps to build interest in the fight and build interest in himself as a as a brand and as a character. He's he's actually done that. Kamaru Usman's basically just done what he's always done. He's gone about his business. He's prepared. He's fought well, and he's present. He's um done himself justice. Done himself in his camp justice as far as his execution of a game plan and his ability to fight and fight back. And but as I've said many times before, if that's all you want to do as a fighter, that's fine. But it's only going to make you so much money. It's only going to give you so many opportunities because no person who's a superstar in anything, sports, music, acting, whatever you want to call it, writing, anybody who's well-known and has a brand and stands out has to do more than be excellent at what they do. You have to sell yourself. You have to sell your work. You have to sell events that are built around you. And Usman doesn't seem to have much interest in that. He really doesn't. And his his idea of fighting Leon Edwards next, saying Leon Edwards is more worthy, not saying he is or isn't, but that just tells me that he really doesn't have any interest in the circus or the show, which is fine. He's just a real, maybe he's just that kind of fighter. He's just legitimate and he just cares about fighting, but it's always going to put a hard cap on the money he makes and the opportunities he has because he doesn't have a name. Now, as long as you have the belt, you automatically kind of get a certain amount of cachet and a certain amount of opportunity, but it, he can't really maximize it because he doesn't really say or do the things necessary to maximize it. So yeah, he's he's not going to be the biggest name, and I don't know that he necessarily wants to be the biggest name. I think he just wants to be the best guy. And to that to that extent, he's going to need people like Colby to help him sell and to build his own brand. But as known as Colby is, he's not the champion, and that matters. You know, especially when you take a stance that Colby takes, you have to win the belt. You can't talk like that and lose. So, as far as um, Usman is concerned, what does he need to do to become a bigger champion? Like, uh, after coming out of this fight, do you want to see him fight more the next time out? Because if I'm, let's say I am Conor McGregor's uh, manager or uh, Jorge Masvidal's manager or Nate Diaz's manager, I don't want them to fight tomorrow because it's going to be an ugly fight. And I don't think any of those guys can win that bout um he's a big nasty 170 pounder who i think would dominate those guys physically so who is next for him to uh continue building his legacy well i mean the thing is when you're the champion eventually all roads go through you it's just a matter of time if you can hold on to your belt long enough eventually your opportunity is going to come so he's not going to make really big money for a while the best thing he can do is keep on winning, defending his belt, defending his belt, getting some more cachet, getting some more momentum, hopefully more fans sign on. But just by continually to by continuing to defend the fight, defend the belt, and doing so in impressive fashion or dominant fashion is the only thing he can do. I don't, like I said, I don't know if he has that kind of charismatic personality. I haven't seen it as of yet. He seems to be a guy who needs a strong B-side or an A-side where he can be the B-side to help him break free of his his position in mixed martial arts. But the but the thing is, he's a champion, so everybody has to discuss him or talk about him at some point. And because he's a champion, he's going to be put on the forefront by the UFC. Even the people we say the UFC doesn't really push, they still put them out in the front because of, of their status. So as long as he has that belt, he's always going to be given a certain amount of opportunities. He's always going to be given a certain amount of media obligations, and he's always going to be mentioned a certain amount because of who he is. And if he just keeps on putting on good fights, like I said, I don't know if he'll become superstar level, but he'll definitely be in the conversation anytime somebody's talked about a potential superstar, especially one who might who might who competes in his division or is thinking about competing in his division. If you were in charge, who would you book him against next? What pick one name? Uh, I guess Mass Mass would be the the easiest, the biggest name right off the bat. Um, yeah, if I'm going for money. Mastodol, if I'm going for uh, legitimacy, probably Leon Edwards. True, true. Um, let's move on to our next topic. And let's talk about um, Max Holloway. Oh, yeah. And, wait, 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 before, before we get into Holloway, really quick, I just want to, I, I have to give us a victory lap because 
everybody assumed that Usman would be that Colby Covington would dictate Usman with his 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 pace, his pressure, his activity. And the thing we kept saying is, Colby Covington's whole style is built on guys who can't wrestle with him, guys who won't engage with him, guys who will take a step back trying to avoid his pressure and his physicality. Once he faced a guy he couldn't physically bully or a guy who wouldn't move back and would punch with him, the, the jig was going to be up against Colby Covington. Once you take his wrestling away, he's really not that good a striker. He can throw a lot of strikes. He can throw different strikes. He can throw a lot of them. But he doesn't have the nuance as far as the footwork, the placement, the defensive awareness. And all those things got exploited once he faced a guy who he couldn't push up against the cage and a guy who wasn't afraid of his wrestling. So then it became just a matter of who's tougher, who's more committed, who's got the better strategy and can stick with it. And the fact of the matter was that that was Kamaru, that was Kamaru Uzma. Kobe coming in tried to overwhelm him, but once Uzma decided he's going to stand his ground and fight back with him and attack the body, the fight was essentially lost. Colby Covington is only only diverse and smart with his striking when he can dictate where it happens and he can put you on your heels because you're afraid of locking up with them and getting into wrestling exchanges. Once you take the wrestling out of it, his defense falls apart, his offense becomes very predictable, and once he runs out of ideas, he, he doesn't have anything else to go to. There's no plan B, there's no plan C, there's no plan D. He's either going to overwhelm you, back you up, and break you down, or he's just going to keep throwing and running into counters and running into shot. It's just a matter of can you eliminate the wrestling and are you willing to punch with him instead of just letting him get off, try to get away, and then come back at him. You have to punch with him. You have to give him a reason to hesitate. You have to give him a reason to take a step back. That's really all Kamaru Usman did. A lot of that is because of his wrestling pedigree, but I feel there's other fighters who just from a striking stance could do what Kamaru Usman did. If the question is are you good enough defensively or are you big enough threat as a wrestler? where you can neutralize his wrestling or make it make it even money to where he doesn't have that as an escape valve whenever it gets too hot in striking exchanges. And that, that's what really separated Usman from uh, Covington. But I wasn't surprised by this because Covington, to me, is a really shallow striker who took advantage of the fact that most MMA fighters have poor defensive footwork, poor defense, and poor counters. It was going to take somebody who's willing to stand up to him and punch with him. And most guys aren't going to do that. They're, they see volume, they back up. They try to back up, they try to reset. Usman realized that he bit down on his mouthpiece and just exchanged with them. And eventually, Kobe Covington broke down halfway because of the punishment Usman was giving him, halfway because of how much energy he was spending trying to get his volume off and trying to pressure him. So it's like he was doing half the work for Usman. Usman finished off the other half of the work. All right, so let's move on and talk about the Kobe event where Alexander Volkanovski becomes the new featherweight champion, defeating uh, Max Holloway across five rounds. Uh, my first question here is, did this victory surprise you? Because a lot of people seem to have uh, mixed mixed feedback about whether they saw Volkanovski as a dog or as they saw him as someone who could walk away with the title. What were your thoughts heading into the fight? Uh, my thoughts heading into the fight, because he's, he's another city kickboxing prod, prodigy. And the thing about it is, with those guys, they, they said... they I've. Every time I get on Twitter, I get accused of being hate- hateful towards camps because I'm like, you don't pay attention to details. You lean too much on your fighter's attributes. You lean too much on aggression. You're not coming up with plans to take things away and forcing guys to go to plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. It's just overwhelm, volume, physicality, aggression, power. Those things are great, but at some point, those things level off. And if you don't have legitimate answers to the questions posed, you are going to be outclassed. When I saw Volvo Kanowski, the biggest advantage that Max Holloway always has over guys guys is his his reach his conditioning and his aggression those are the things he always leans on to win fights when he fought jose aldo jose aldo won the first round and a half in both fights but eventually max's durability his reach and his his cardio his activity allowed him to take the fights over and in most of the fights he's been in the large amount of what keeps him in it is he loses rounds he'll be getting touched up and he goes to another gear he ups his volume, he ups his body attack, he starts pushing guys back, he starts keeping them at the end of his reach, and then he just overwhelms and breaks them. Happened to Anthony Pettis, happened to Brian Ortega, happened to Frankie Edgar, happened to Jose Aldo. It's happened time and time again, we've seen it. But against a guy like Volkanovski, he wasn't going to be able to physically dominate him, and he wasn't going to be able to just easily outpace him. And without those two, two attributes, he has an advantage. When those things weren't advantages, he was no longer able to be consistently keep the fight where he wanted to and i said that on twitter i was like 
Max doesn't have a physicality advantage. He doesn't have a durability advantage. He doesn't have a cardio advantage. So now it's going to just come down to skills. And I don't know that Max has been working on his skills enough to beat Volkanovski. And that's essentially what happened. Max got too comfortable leaning on those, those physical tools he had. And once those physical tools weren't separators anymore, he didn't have any idea or any adjustment he could make to get the fight occurring at the pace he wants, at the place he wants, or, it, or being able to dictate the exchanges the way he wanted to. So let me ask this. What are your thoughts about Volkanovski long-term? Did he show you something so different that you can expect him going on an ex- extended run? Or, or are we looking at a situation where Holloway can quickly get back to the title and um, take it back next fight? Well, I, I don't know that he'll take it back because I think, as somebody often says, when you're a champion, the thing about it is you become the guy who's hunted more than any contender or anybody else. You've got what I want. So you have people who spend hours and hours, even with, when they're preparing for other fighters, figuring out your tendencies, figuring out your holes, figuring out your strengths, and figuring out ways to neutralize them. In the case of other guys who fought, fought Max Holloway, they didn't really take things away from him. They exploited certain holes, but they never took things away from him. Volkanovski was taking things away from him. Holloway didn't get his jab going. He wasn't able to get the entries he wanted to. He wasn't able to put the combinations together the way he wanted to because he was never able to get clean entries. Every time he stepped in, he was getting countered or kicked, which kept him at a range he wasn't comfortable with and didn't allow him to get the first one or two strikes off and allow him to build momentum. That's You don't realize that unless that's a tape study. You watch a lot of tape. You watch years and years of fights. You notice what he does to set up his shots. You notice what, he, what position he needs to be in to, to even get the shots off. You know, you notice what positions he needs to stay in to be effective with those shots. Volkanovski and his team broke that all up. And instead of just trying to punch with them or get away from them and do reactive takedowns or time of the clinch and muscle them, he kept using kicks and long strikes to disrupt Frank Max at the edge of the pocket where he likes to operate. And once he... He disrupted that, then Volkanovski was able to get his entries in, and Volkanovski was able to turn Max, and Volkanovski was able to build momentum and putting kicks and punches together. I don't know how quickly Max Holloway should get a rematch because I don't know how quickly he can make adjustments. His team hasn't had to make adjustments in years. The adjustment is guys get to him early, Max ramps up the, the physicality, he ramps up the activity, guys start getting a little gun shy, they start getting a little hesitant, they get a little desperate, and then Max is defense and his offensive repertoire allow him to break guys down and finish them. But as far as technique, he hasn't really made a whole lot of technical adjustments just because most guys, when he ramps it up, can't stay with him. When he ramped it up against Volkanovski, Volkanovski was able to keep up with him. So he couldn't just wear him down and ho- and think that Volkanovski was going to bail on a technique because he was getting tired. Volkanovski was ready to go another five, six, seven, eight rounds. So it just became technique and strategy and I think that Max's team and Max have gotten a little lazy in their assessment of opponents and in their adjustments to opponents because they haven't had to do very much. And now we have a guy who's on a comparable physical level with you, and now you have to do a lot more to win, and he, he didn't have it to go to. I don't think Max made an adjustment really throughout the entirety of the fight. He never could deal with the kicks. He could never deal with the fact that he couldn't get entries. He could never really reestablish his range or change his range to a point where he could be consistently effective. And I don't know that you fix that in two months, three months, six months. And that was that is something that's kind of stood out to me as well. You see a lot of people talking about this, um, but he didn't make a lot of adjustments uh, on Saturday. He seemed to be doing the, the the same thing, which didn't play out for him clearly. So, uh, what do you think about that? Is that a is this an indictment of how much wear and tear? Holloway has on his body over the years or is this just a situation where he didn't perform on Saturday? I, I think part of his wear and tear Max to me doesn't take the same shot that he used to take. At some point he used to get cracked and he'd walk right through it and the, the benefit of walking right through it means you're willing to not just initiate exchanges but you're willing to stay in exchanges for a, a longer period of time. When you can stay in the exchanges, eventually the other guy, even if he's hitting harder than you, the fact that you're throwing three or four, landing three or four for every one or two he lands is mentally exhausting because he, that's three 
three or four shots you're landing clean to the one shot he lands clean. That's not counting all the shots hitting shoulders, arms, chest, clipping you on the head. You're rolling with them. Those still do damage. Those still accrue damage because the amount of shots going in. Once that happens, these guys start backing up. Once they start backing up, then he overwhelms them. In the case of Volkanovski, Volkanovski had defensive answers, whether it's in the clinch, being able to, to, to set up his shots with kicks, and his, open the shots with kicks or mix kick-punch combinations in there, that disrupted Max. And also, Max can't take the punishment as well, so now he can't stay in those exchanges, which means you start to see the, the holes in his footwork because when he, ba- when he backs out, he doesn't really circle out or pivot out when he's not in control. He can kind of back straight out or jumps back out. When you do that, all the guy has to do is step with you, and he's still right on you, putting pressure on you, still putting shots together on you. Those are little things you don't notice from Max because Max always has been able to walk through guys and ramp it up and stay in the pocket with them and push them back to where they're trying to exit the pocket. But now that his chin's not quite there and his re- recuperation of recuperative abilities aren't quite there, he doesn't take those chances anymore. Not as much. He'll, he'll pick spots to fight, but he won't do that from beginning to the end. He won't push that pace. He won't expose himself to that kind of punishment. And once you change that one aspect of how he fights, every other aspect and every other skill set gets impacted. It's all connected. It all gets impacted. And so then you start seeing the holes he has defensively when he's pressured, defensively when he's exiting the pocket, even defensively when he's entering the pocket, when the guy doesn't just give him a clean entry or clean setup for his jab. So part of it is because of the punishment. He's taken a lot of shots, and I think that Dustin Poirier shot fight really, really set him back a little bit. Even the Anthony Pettis fight, he was taking heavy lumber. Jose Aldo fight, that's two fights in a row. He's taking heavy lumber, and it, it catches up to you. And when you're a guy who leans so heavily on cardio and physicality and durability, when you lose even 10% of that, the effectiveness of your fight style drops, like falls off a cliff, essentially. Because so much of what you do is dependent on you being able to take certain spots, dominate certain spots, and force guys in other spots. He can't do that anymore. Not consistently, he can't. So something I've been thinking about a lot lately is... Are we looking at a situation where Max Holloway moves up to 155? I, I don't think anybody really talked about that, and he's talked, he's mentioned it in the past. Do you, do you think this is the last fight we saw him at 145? I really think after after either right before the Ortega fight or right after the Ortega fight, he should have he should have moved up. To be to be quite honest, I feel like that weight cut doesn't do him any favors. I feel like he's had issues. Before when his body shut down, when he tried to make the Khabib fight, I and mean, he tried to make 55 and his body was shutting down. Then the issue, I forgot the other fight he was going to take. I think he's going to fight Ortega before, and then he had another issue. I feel like his body's been telling him that he shouldn't be at this weight class. And I think being in that weight class and taking that punishment has also contributed to his ability to recover and his ability to maintain pace and his ability to fight w- with the amount of physicality that he's used to fighting with. So I, I think those things kind of shorten his dominance, his physical dominance at the weight class, and I think it's going to also impact him as he moves up to 55 because it's a couple years too late where his chin is going to be where it should be, his cardio won't be where it should be, and his recuperation abilities won't be where it should be, and he's going to be facing guys who he physically can't manhandle, guys who he might hit him with 15 shots, but for every 15, when he lands at one, it does a whole lot of damage. So I think there's a lot of guys who can do what Dustin Poirier did, who have enough power and enough physicality where they won't get pushed back. Where they he pushes them, they can push him back. He hits them with five shots. When they hit him with that one-two, it's going to really change his perspective on fights. I, I think he needs to take move up. I think he needs to take some time off and really work on his defense, really work on different entries, and really work on his exits. Because when he, when he eventually moves up, and if he loses, he'll move up. Even if he wins, he's probably going to move up. That difference in size and power is going to be so dramatic he won't be able to fight the way he fights currently. He can't even do it at featherweight anymore. He damn sure can't do it at lightweight. So we didn't say, talk say much about Volkanovski. Uh, let's touch on him real quickly. What do you see next for him? Who is the next one 145-pound contender? Uh, well, since he's won, it really opens up the whole division now. I mean, obviously, uh, it opens up the whole division because there's guys who've lost to Max Holloway, but they haven't lost to um, they haven't lost to Volkanovski. So now the division's wide open. Yair Rodriguez is probably close to a title fight. Whoever wins between Chance Jung Young and uh, Frankie Edgar is probably close to a title fight. Brian Ortega, if he can ever get riding and put a win or two together, 
he's open to it. Most likely it's going to be Frankie. It's going to be Max Holloway who's going to be the next up to fight. But the whole division has been turned upside down now because Max was so dominant as a contender and a and a title challenge title titleist that the fights were just being retread matchups. Now he no longer has that issue. Now it's a whole new fresh set of matchups for Volkanovski moving up, and everybody who's in the top seven should be uh, jockeying for positions because now now those fights are reality. They they'll get their second or their shot. Because now a new guy has a title, which basically set, resets the whole uh, division. Good thoughts there, sir. Let's move on to the other title fight that happened on Saturday where Jermaine Durandami picked up a win, a second win. Excuse me, I'm sorry. Amanda Nunez defeated Jermaine Durandami for a second time uh, via decision. But this time it was a little dicey at some moments here. What did this fight tell you about Amanda Nunez? and her dominance as the women's greatest fighter of all time. Does how she performed on Saturday change your idea on that? Or is this just a situation we should expect to see when a fighter reigns for so long? Well, I think she's shown that she's the best female fighter. She showed the race. She, she fought smart, something that Ronda Rousey didn't always do. Um, you know, Ronda obviously had her clear advantages in transitional grappling and she uh, she gave some of that up to focus on striking, and it exposed her against Holly Holm. It started to expose her against Misha Tate, but it really exposed her against Holly Holm. And 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 Amanda Nunes doesn't have that ego. I think Amanda Nunes has suffered crushing defeats before, and so she understands the context of fighting, and that she can't she can't let her ego talk her into getting into a fight that puts somebody else in a position to beat her. So she fought a mixed martial arts fight. She was clearly fighting someone who was better on the feet than her. And instead of continuing to exchange on the feet, thinking that her power or her athleticism would turn the fight because it wasn't going to, she turned it into a wrestling match. She realized she recognized the hole in Jermaine Durandamy's fight game, and she exploited it time and time again. That's what you do as a smart mixed martial artist. If Cyborg would have taken that approach with Nunes, we might not be at this position. If Holly Holm had shown a little bit more versatility in what she's doing, we might not be in this position. And luckily for her, both people essentially uh, choked, making wrong decisions and fighting recklessly, and got exposed by a better technician and a more poised and disciplined fighter. So it shows Amanda Nunes to be exactly what we've known her to be, a girl with a broad set of skills, maybe not the deepest set of skills, but a broad set of skills, and who has a good enough sense to fight to win rounds, not just to end fights. Because if she just fought to end the fight, she could have easily exposed herself to a finish from Durandami. Instead, she fought to win rounds, control her, and break her down, which allowed her the positions, the time and control, and protect, protected it, put a buffer up as far as the, the punishment she had to take that got her the win. It was a dominant win. The only issue I had with the win was there's a big gap between her and Durandami on the ground. And the fact that she couldn't find a finish and the fact that Durandami almost had her a couple of times is a little concerning to me. I mean, it's one thing to, to have a tough matchup. It's one thing to have to work for it. But, I mean, you know, if, if, if Tiago Santos almost finished John Jones from the ground or was taking him down, I'd never hear the end of it. So why is it that Nunes almost being finished by a career-long striker and not being able to, you know, actually finish her on the ground. Once it's just it's picking, it's picking at it, it's being picky. But if you're going to dominate an area that your opponent is that weakened, how do you not finish? How do you not get on top and just pound them out? How do you not just submit them? I mean, Deuteronomy's terrible on the ground. She is literally awful, and I don't really feel at any point that Nunes was close to finishing her. I think the only person who was close to finishing anybody was Deuteronomy on the feet. When she when she rocked Nunes a couple times, so uh, of course I'm going to be a little shocked, if not a little disappointed, that you're supposedly the pound for pound best, and you have this huge technical advantage, and you really can't exploit it the way it should be exploited. So if um, Nunez is doing her thing, what do you do next with her? Do you keep her at 135? Is her next title um, opportunity against uh, Megan Anderson in the future, or are we talking about um, this? Clarissa Shields fight? Are we really having that conversation? Um, I would probably think. I mean, there's no real fight at, at featherweight. Who's she gonna fight? Uh, Megan Anderson. Megan Anderson barely has a couple wins at featherweight. 
The other girl lost to Cyborg, who and she knocked out Cyborg pretty decisively. She's beat Holly Holm, who was a former contender for Featherweight. So there's really no Featherweight contenders. At Bantamweight, there's no fight that makes her money. There's no fight that gener- generates really any interest. I guess Irina Adonia, Adonia has a has an argument after her big win. If Holly Holm beats Raquel Pennington, I guess we could talk a rematch. But as far as the division, there's no big money fight for her. There's no fight that's going to take her to the next stage or make her the money she wants to make on her own. Or even if she's on another card with a bigger star, she's she's kind of stuck because of the thinness of each division. The uh, Clarissa Shields fight is a, is a really interesting fight for her. I, I don't know if she's willing to do the boxing match and the MMA fight, but as far as money fights, that's the best option she has. She doesn't have any other money fight option in mixed martial arts. And anything else over the the only thing that would generate any real interest or excitement is if she gets beaten by one of these girls who are who are underdeveloped and, and on paper underskilled than her. Anything she does as far as a win is just not gonna create any interest. She's not a popular champion. People don't seem to buy into her very much. And she needs a strong A side or she needs a strong story to help build interest in her because in and of herself, she's just not very interesting. Not to the, and that's a, that's not my opinion. That's just the facts. If you're an interesting fighter, people will pay to see you, and the ratings and the pay per views reflect that. She is not interesting, and the pay per views and the ratings reflect that. What do you think her position is right now, pound for pound, uh, women's or oh, pound for pound fighters right now? I think I had her at number three. I guess if you want to say that she's the best female fighter, then yeah, she she'd be highly ranked. The hard part, I I want to rank her too, just because the legit the fact that she's so dominant in her division. But once again, I mean, you know, I mean, it's just beating up Ronda after she took a year off and hadn't even fought. The Misha Tate win is is good, but Misha Tate, as good as she's been, has hasn't really been considered elite by the majority of girls, by the majority of people who are fans of women's mixed martial arts. Beating Raquel Pennington. Doesn't say much. Beating Valentina Shevchenko was very impressive, but in the second fight, she wasn't very impressive in doing so. She eked out a win in the first fight. She almost got finished by Valentina. So it's like she's got these big wins. She's decisive wins, but they're over fighters who aren't really dominant. You know, Holly Holm, as good as she is, was like, what, a fight or two off of a four-fight losing streak? Valentina was fighting in the wrong weight division. You know, Cyborg is probably the best win she's had, the most legitimate win she has. And this is a cyborg who everybody knows is on a physical decline. So it, it's on paper. You can say she's one of the pound for pound best. She's cleaned out her division. She's a two division. She's a two division champion. But as far as like what those people actually have to offer in their skill set, it's really not that impressive. None of the wins she has are more impressive than what, you know, what um, Usman had or what even Demetrius Johnson had, you know, it, it's just, the opposition and the skill set and the experience level is so much lower on the women's side. There's so many gaps that that her opponents have that it makes it really hard to compare it to what the men have to deal with. You know, I mean, let's face it, Duran Durandri still can barely take de- defend a takedown. I don't know in what men's division they have a fighter who can't defend a takedown or can't get back up, who get who gets to fight for a title. Where is this fighter? They don't exist. Very true thoughts, sir, sir. True thoughts. Let's move on and talk about the next fight where Marlon Morales defeated Jose Alvin via split decision. We're going to talk about this, but before we do, I want to talk about the conversation around Henry Cejudo wanting to offer a title shot to Jose Aldo in there, and that fight is actually being considered by UFC President Dana White. I wrote about this this week, and this is also important because today we find out Henry Cejudo was stripped of his featherweight title or flyweight title right before we started this podcast. Joseph Benavidez and um, I think Figueroa are going to be the ones fighting for it next. So we'll talk about that later, probably um, on our next podcast. But what are your thoughts about uh, the idea that Henry Cejudo and Jose Aldo could be the next fight for bantamweight title? Uh, in my opinion, I think it's totally wrong and it flies in the face of what these guys are doing when they step inside the octagon every week. But what are your thoughts and... and, and where do you think that this kind of matchmaking leads the sport? Well, I mean, it's not a real sport. It's sports entertainment. There's no logical line of progression for any of the 
the fighters. If you beat A, B, C, D, and E, that doesn't mean you get a title shot. That just means you might get a title shot. You're in the discussion. There's no direct approach to getting a title shot, getting a contender spot, making money, or having success in mixed martial arts. In every other sport, there is a road you take to ascend to a certain position. You're in NBA. There's March Madness. There's the playoffs for NBA and NFL and MLB. And in MMA, there's none of that. It's you, you got a big win over a certain kind of name that catapults you. The fans got behind you and that catapults you. Somebody else gets injured and you're on a two-fight losing streak, but you have a name. So that gets you into a title fight. It, there's no logical approach to it. You can't say I just beat the second, third, second, fifth, seventh, and eleventh guy and I get a title fight. There's a guy who just beats number 15 and he's getting a title fight. There's just no logic to it, which is half the reason I think Corey McDonald decided to step out of this nonsense and try to fit into a, an organization that has a steady progression where you can actually plan things out and know where you stand as far as title contention, being out of title contention, or being a contender. There's just no rhyme or reason to it. So this doesn't shock me at all, and it just once again proves that this is not a legitimate sport because there is no path to success. It's all just hodgepodge, random, throw a rock in any direction and see where it lands. And if he fights Jose Aldo, I mean, that's his prerogative. A lot of guys would probably like to see it, but it doesn't make any sense and it's an unnecessary fight. But it's not Jose's fault. It's not Henry's fault. It's Marlon Moraes' fault. They gave him a showcase fight to put on, put a stamp on his career and show that he was a big star. He was supposed to do to Aldo what Yari Rodriguez did to BJ Penn. And he couldn't get the job done. I don't care if he even won the fight. I, I don't care that it's not a robbery. He was supposed to knock out Aldo and do so in spectacular fashion, and he was unable to. And because he couldn't, now we have this discussion about about Henry Cejudo and Jose Aldo possibly fighting. If Marlon Moraes would have done the job that they hired him to do, we wouldn't have the discussion. But he didn't. So now we have to talk about and consider a fight between a clearly declined Jose Aldo and a clearly clout-chasing Henry Cejudo. He's triple C. What do you think about him being clout chasing no, champion? Nope. Oh, well, yeah, I'm about to say because he's definitely double C now because he only has one title. Uh, what do you think about him being stripped? I, I mean, I was surprised they let him get away with this act as long as they did. I see why Connor got away with it. Connor is a name. He makes money. He brings more value to the division. The fact that he might possibly compete in the featherweight division again made the featherweight division more exciting. It made it more interesting because you never know who might be fighting Conor next. Him winning the wealth, the lightweight title helped the lightweight champion because it made history, it made the champion's money, and it made it, every fight at lightweight that much more exciting because there's a chance Conor's back in the mix. Henry Cejudo, he's like Kobe Covington. People talk about him. People are aware of him. He's known. But it hasn't, in my opinion, translated to actual pay-per-views, ratings, or or merchandise sales, which means it hasn't been monetized. If it's mon- if, it, if, you're not, if you can't monetize it, the UFC only has so much use for being in the headlines if it doesn't reflect in pay-per-view buys or ratings. And with Henry Cejudo, it hasn't. So it was only a matter of time before they stripped him. I, just like Connor, Connor was eventually gotten stripped, but they gave him more leeway because of the status and the money he generates. Henry Cejudo doesn't generate any of that. As a result, they're operating on a much shorter lease with much shorter leash with him and this is just the repercussions of it he had his chance to, to make his decision and defend the belt he chose not to and now they don't have any choice but to separate him and try to get the division back on track do you think that they keep flyweight around or is this just uh, I mean is this just a ploy like I don't think that they need to keep I don't think they have any intentions for that division long term but I wonder why they made this fight at, at this time. I think they keep it around for a little while. I mean, it's still good fights. They're still good fighters. And it's a sm- and they downsize the division a little bit, so they can still do some things and have some round robins and some fights that make sense and some fights that are exciting. I don't know that it's here five years from now, but for the next year or two, yeah, I, I can see them just fight. It's good fights. All the guys who are left over a high level, and you just let it sort itself out. True, true that, true that. Um, I just also want to say, Marlon Moraes, I, I said this against Henry Cejudo, and everybody told me how dynamic he was, how explosive, and I said, yeah, he's dynamic explosive when two things happen. One, 
a guy isn't durable, isn't really durable, and he can just blow him out with those huge bouts of huge moments of offensive offensive wizardry and athleticism, or B, he's never faced a guy who's hard to get to. Because when he faced the guys who's hard to get to and he can't get to his spots and he can't easily land those devastating strikes, then it comes down to can you think? Can you read what the guy's doing? Can you take things away from him? And the answer is no. Jose Alto slow Jose Alto was not he was faster than expected, but he was still slow. Jose Alto's chin is not there, his power isn't there, and he's still not throwing leg kicks. Even with all those things on his side, Marlon Marais couldn't find any sort of way to consistently and efficiently put strikes together or land the right right strikes to get Jose Aldo out of there. And once again, Jose Aldo is a veteran. He's very skilled. He's tough. He's experienced. He's seen all the tricks. He's got a great camp. But he is so far outclassed athletically. The fact that Marais really couldn't do any real damage past the first round is an indictment on him. And once again, he started fading. Once again, he started getting tired. Once again, his defense and his offense fell off at the same time. And once again, he's made it look like a guy who's a million worth a million bucks in the first round and a guy who's not worth two blood nickels in the second or third. It, it was a bad performance by him, and it showed a lack of awareness, a lack of skill, and just lack of cardio. And I, after seeing this fight, I don't see how anybody who's an elite bantamweight isn't jumping at the back to fight him because he's just so tremendously athletically and it's seemingly mentally flawed. Who do you think can beat him then? Uh, a lot of people, to be honest, I, and I said this on I said this on Twitter. If Uriah Faber would have fought that Marlon Marais, Uriah Faber would have beaten him because Peter Yan's advantage was he was able to maintain and build on his pace and maintain his physicality. And whenever Uriah hit him, he was able to ramp answer with three, four, five, six other shots. Marlon Marais, after unloading on Aldo in the first round, got dead tired. He had nothing in the second round. He didn't really have anything in the third round. Aldo just wasn't able to pull the trigger. Faber is many things. He's not really as defensively sound or offensively diverse as you like. He hasn't really evolved, but Faber is a guy who keeps a high pace, has great physical durability, and if you slow even an instant, he's going to take you down. He's going to beat you up. Marais fell off a cliff after the second round, and if you're telling me that late in third round versus the guy who's not really who's not punishing him and not working at a high rate, you tell me that Ryan Faber has no chance to land a big right hand or to get a submission or to take a guy down. I don't believe you. I think if Marais would have fought, would have fought Favor that night, Favor would have beaten him. Probably would have stopped him. True, good thought, sir. Uh, let's cover some other aspects of this fight. And you mentioned Peter Yan. Is Peter Yan now a top contender for one thirty-five? I want to see him fight Cejudo before Aldo does. I want to too, but the fact of the matter is, I don't know that beating Uriah Favor, who's had one quality win as far as rankings and in danger he's had one quality win in the past what two years he was he was off for a year i don't think that's good enough i mean it was, a, it was a dynamic win it was very impressive but you're right favor given his corner and given his his i don't know i'm gonna say his ego or his self-confidence he hasn't developed a good enough game to exploit a guy like Yon. His biggest advantage was Yon was going to over-pursue, be over-aggressive, and he was going to land a big counter right hand on him or land a big counter shot and put him away. Faber doesn't have the skills to box it range with someone like that. He doesn't have the skills to defensively manage that kind of work rate and that kind of accuracy and answer with his own shots. He He's never had that kind of skill. He definitely does not have that now. So I, I can't be shocked by the way the fight went. Um but I, I don't know that beating Faber gets you a title fight. I mean, I guess the UFC can do whatever they want. Trust me, they've done it before. But as far as legitimacy, how do you justify a title fight off of winning your eye favor? I mean, he's a name, but that's about it. There's no other stat or what, way you can look at it where you say, okay, this guy deserves that shot. This guy, this guy is quality enough. He should be getting this. I mean, how, how do you justify it? I mean, a lot of people are talking about Yan's uh, personality and how that kind of stole the show this weekend. And while I think that's great, I don't believe that that necessarily translates into pay-per-view buys so early. Oh, it won't. It won't transfer into pay-per-view buys. It doesn't transfer in legitimacy. He hasn't beaten enough guys to, to, to say that he deserves a fight. And it's this, as much as the hardcores like him and the, and the tech, technician Nazis like him, the fact of the matter, he's not interesting enough for 
to to really g- generate enough money that it's worth the UFC's while to put him in with Cejudo. True. Good talk, sir, sir. Um, what else stood out from you or for you on this card? I want to talk about Jeff Neal. Uh, what are your thoughts about this guy, man? He's been putting on a quite impressive performances back to back. And where do you think his ceiling is? Uh, I think he put on a very impressive performance, but I have to say the fact of the matter is um, the UFC hasn't done Mike Perry any favors. He's never really had any easy matchups. They've put him in with killer after killer, and no matter how tough you are, how dynamic you are, at some point, your your the world class athleticism, your durability, your ability to recover falls off falls off a cliff and it never comes back. And so, a fight versus a fight with Neil, who's probably a better athlete, a more technical striker, and a more explosive explosive striker, was just a bad all round matchup for for Mike Perry. Now he got the job done. He knocked down in a spectacular fashion. He's shown great poise and great growth as far as his maturity and his ability to execute under duress and to fight back when he's put into bad spots or he's losing rounds. But the fact of the matter is he's fought guys who aren't quite the athlete he is. And in the case of Mike Perry, he's fought a guy who's tremendously defensively flawed and limited in the area that is considered his strength, which is the striking. So this, is, to me, was a setup match, and it was a showcase match. The only difference between him and Marias is Neil got the job done, and he, he, he closed the show. But I'm not that impressed with it because Perry's already been physically slowing down. I've been talking about this for at least a better part of a year. He's regressing. His ability's not there. His explosive's not there. And against a guy who's a dynamic, explosive, technical, and durable striker, there was really no chance he had at winning. No chance he had at winning that kind of fight. What else, um, anything else on this card stood out to you before we move on? Uh, it was shocking to me that they threw Ketlin Vera in there with um, with Irina Dania. I, I understand why they did it. Aldania is a girl who hasn't responded very well when she's been pressured or when she's faced a big, strong physical opponent who can impose their will on her. But the fact of the matter is um, she hadn't fought in, what, a year or two? And she really hadn't fought any athletic or dynamic strikers in, in, in for the larger part of her career. And now she was going to fight one of the best athletes, one of the longest athletes, and one of the most offensively skilled athletes as far as the striking goes. And I can't imagine why they thought she'd be sharp enough in her recovery, sharp enough in her execution, or sharp enough in her strategy to really exploit Irina Dania, except for the overall, overall general approach that Adonia doesn't respond well to physicality and pressure. It was a risky fight for Adonia because you lose to a girl who hasn't fought in one or two years. You can essentially kiss any rankings or for progress you have goodbye. But it's a risky fight for Kit. Vet, vet, excuse me for uh, for that. I can't say her name. Um, Ketlin Vieira because she was on a win streak. She was a highly ranked fighter. She was, you know months away from a title shot and now all that's gone away and she's got to rebuild herself completely and and as far as i'm concerned she has distinct limitations as far as offensive and defensive striking it's going to be very hard for her to navigate now that she's been exposed to someone who can't really take punishment and someone who doesn't have the ability to adjust in her setups entries or exits that's a bad way to be exposed in a division full of girls who aren't great athletes but who are good enough and disciplined enough to exploit the clear holes that Ketlin's now been shown to have. Did that knockout surprise you at all? Um, in a sense, because Adana to me is not the biggest puncher, but in another sense it didn't because Ketlin is a girl who just keeps on physicality and aggression. She doesn't have defensive instinct she doesn't have really a defensive technique and her her urge to be aggressive and over pursue is bound to get her running full force into a counter and which would which would finish her and that's essentially what happened she was trying to get into these exchanges and just got caught she doesn't have the necessary skills to get in and out of those exchanges with any sort of consistent safety and when she she just played with fire one time too many and got finished 
So speaking of playing with fire, let's talk about this Saturday's main event. Frankie Edgar stepping in on what two weeks notice to fight um, Korean Zombie, and he's supposedly trying to hang on to fight Corey Sanhagen uh, the following month in Raleigh. What are your thoughts about this here, man? I think this is a bad move by Frankie, but with the title picture looking quite different than it did a month ago, it may play out for him. What are your thoughts about this move here, and how do you see Saturday's fight going? Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Frankie still knows how tough it is to be a band of weight, and I think he, he thinks that a win like this keeps him in contention, and now that Max isn't the champ anymore, it gives him a chance to be parlay that into a potential title fight if he plays his card. Right. So I think he's trying to take the shortcut to skip the line and be in title contention once again at 45, which would be much easier than doing so at Bantamweight. Um, I just don't know that he's... I don't know much about either one of these guys. I don't know that they're at a point where they can take a lot of punishment, either either guy. And Frankie doesn't take shots the way he used to. He doesn't seem as athletic or dynamic. And his striking's gotten better, but when he tends to get tired or a guy really ramps up the pace, he just seems not to be able to do much of anything. So it's really a 50-50 fight to me. It depends on who's got the most left. Uh, Chan Jung Sung Young has been notoriously hittable. He's been in way too many wars. The thing can be said is Frankie Edgar. The only difference is Young's going to be a little bit bigger, more physically imposing, and he, he's still probably the better athlete. So I'm going to say I lean towards Chan Sung Young but that's knowing that he could get knocked out with the first hit sh- shot he gets hit by just because of all the damage he's accrued during the time in the UFC. Sorry, I was on mute. Do you think the Korean, Korean zombie is a um, step away from fighting for the belt? And if so... I don't think so. I is, think he's two fights. What do you, so I was going to ask, do you think he's a, he's a threat to that title? Um, at the stages at now, I don't think he's a legitimate threat. I don't think he's durable enough. I, I think guys like Volkanovski and I think guys like Max Holloway have a broad enough skill set and a deep enough skill set that they can't just really be easily exposed at any level. And I don't know that the Korean Zombie at this stage is still durable enough to expose them just using physicality and pressure. And I, I haven't seen the, the finesse from him that's going to allow him to get it into the spots he wants untouched and then poses will untouched. And once he starts getting touched, I, I tend to believe that he's just a little more vulnerable than he had been in previous incarnations. Okay. Good thoughts there, sir. And I'm actually excited for one fight. I want to see the whole choice. I want to see what the Korean Superboy looks like in his return to the cage. He's been gone for an extended period of time, which I think is fantastic. How do you think he looks when he comes back? I'm hoping he's rested. I'm hoping he's taking time off and really taken to the process of recovering and, and reserving whatever his body has left. He had been in war after war after war, and, and while it's exciting for the fans and it's great for the news media and it excites us and it gets him an extra $50,000, long-term, those kind of wars add up, especially when you're not... not when you lean on, when you have the fighting style that he has, and, and I'm hoping that he's worked on his craft. I don't. I I want him to be a physical. I want him to throw a lot. I want him to have aggression, but I want him to be more disciplined defensively and a little bit more deliberate in what he does offensively. And I, I hope they've addressed it because if they haven't, he's he's not going to be long for the UFC anyways. He'll be like Mike Perry, another guy taking huge amounts of punishment who can't stick around because his body. And his ability to recover from damage to his body just falls off a cliff. So that those are all the topics I wanted us to talk about today. Um, let everybody know what you're working on uh, over the holiday break, and I'll give all of our listeners some news about this uh, podcast. Uh, I'm going to be working on uh, my article for the. Uh... Uh, Green Arrow, since his show will be getting canceled, I'm going to talk about his fight style, fight IQ, techniques and the tools that he uses to uh, to fight in this fit in this imaginary world of the DC Universe, and I'm just going to give it the treatment that I would give it to a high-level fighter and breaking down and assessing everything he does and how he does it and when he does it. 
Yeah, I'm looking forward to that for sure. Um, I may be covering some content. I have an interview, um, some grappling interviews scheduled, some professional wrestling interviews scheduled. Uh, but as far as the show goes, we, we will be making some changes for 2020, looking to improve our s- subscribers, improve our listeners. And also, um, we may go to a different time. Mike and I are talking about this this week. So, Schwan, I'll keep you abreast of that conversation. And yeah, look for some changes from this podcast to hopefully improve our content and also keep everyone um, informed of what we're doing. Uh, Shwan, let everyone know where they can find us. Find us on FM Anchor, of course, uh, the new platform we've been using. Like it and subscribe. Uh, There's also YouTube, FM Player, and iTunes. Mm -hmm. Great. And with that in mind, Let's go ahead and close out. Everyone, be safe over the break. Enjoy the holidays. Uh, I hope you all have a uh, fantastic Christmas, fantastic New Year's, and just um, bring in a New Year's safe for everybody. So with that in mind, thank you, everyone, and have a great day. Yep, stay here, man. Be safe.